Welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. You know you have to sit down to rest your vocal cords. It's, it depends where you sing from, I suppose. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining in that song of celebration. I, I just want to say to you, it's time for the church to, to wake up to joy again, you know. Just kind of living under this kind of cloud of depression, anxiety, and fear, and For those who belong to the Lord, that's not your dwelling place. Your dwelling place invites you to a place of fullness and joy. uh, It's coming. Joy is coming. It's coming. It's coming. The witness of the church to the world in crisis is not that we become serious or anxious, but that in the midst of all the chaos and anxiety, there is joy, unstoppable powerful joy that just rises from the confidence we have in Jesus Christ and all that he is and all that he will do. I love this scripture says that, you know, that in the end times, the church will come to this place that they will overcome him, that's the enemy, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they will love not their lives even unto death. In other words, the anxieties and frailties of human experience have caved in under the fact that love, love resides and presides over all things. Lord, let it be. Let it be. Some of us need a fresh baptism of love. Nudge somebody and say, I think he's talking to you, you miserable so-and-so. Go on. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to Someone's rushing out to nudge me now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you have a sense of humor. You're going to need it with me. That's for sure. Um, we're on this journey at the moment. We've been on it for about three or four weeks, just kind of trying to adopt a posture of heart concerning an invitation that Jesus has given to all of us who belong to him. He says, come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It sounded good up until this point. <laughs> for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at a problem, a problem I testify is my own, a problem I can witness is probably just about everybody's in this room, that from time to time, we find ourselves not really living in the fullness of that invitation, but we probably, if we're not careful, get a little bit weary in doing good. Is there anybody who's ever been wearied by doing good? You start off with the greatest of enthusiasm. You know, I want to serve the Lord. I want to bless the Lord. But have you noticed that people sometimes don't realize the sacrifice you're making? Sometimes people say things or operate around your life and they don't really appreciate what it's costing you or, or what you've contributed or what you've invested in something. I mean, I stop sometimes and I think of the people in this church who've been serving in, in various departments for more than 20 years. You know, we have people who are our welcome team. They've been on the welcome team for nearly 25 years. That's a long time, isn't it? Do you think every face that comes through the door is happy? Do you think every interaction they've had with the people that come in and out of this, this building has been positive? You know, the Bible says better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. It's, it's a good thing to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. But I want to tell you, you're right at the forefront of all that comes in and all that goes out. And so not all of that's going to be good. And you're not going to wake up every Sunday and think, oh, how excited am I? To stand at the door and shake hands. 
Because you don't know where those hands have been. <laughs> Do you? I think it's funny how we've adopted that sanitizing thing still after all this time. We probably never will go back to trusting that when you shake a hand, the blood of Jesus is going to save you from all sickness. We're probably, we're probably cautious a little bit about that. And there's people in the worship team been serving forever. I mean, Michael, were you 12 when you started? <laughs> How long have you been on the worship team? 16 years. If you'd murdered somebody, you'd be out now, wouldn't you? You would definitely be out now. Has it been all joy? Some joy? Around you, you may not realize this, but people come into this building and some are coming in on Saturdays to pray for you, others come in and clean. I mean, when you leave here today, it will look like Armageddon has taken place. Um, I was saying in the early service that you find all kinds of wonderful things under the chairs. People just discard things. I found a pizza slice last week. Can I just say thank you? Thank you so much. Pepperoni is my favorite. I don't know how long it's been there, but we do have a cleaner that comes in every week. But it was a nice reward at the end of a busy day. None of this happens by accident. All kinds of people, our sound people. All of it, there are people serving you. Well, actually, I think they're serving God. And in serving God, they serve you. You think there's not a day that comes occasionally to them when they think, I won't bother today. Maybe I'll have a lie-in. We're just talking about myself. Maybe it's bank holiday weekend. I might go away with the family and your name's on the rotor and you make the decision to come and do it. You are surrounded by a great cloud of people who love Jesus and serve him. And they serve him incredibly, impeccably. And at times, I think disappointedly because it's not always easy to be a servant. I remember a lecturer of mine at Bible college said this. Nobody minds being a servant. We all like the thought until you're treated like one. And sometimes... We are treated like one. But service is God's gift to us to express our hearts to him in how much we appreciate who he is and all that he's done. But from time to time and maybe season to season, and I think for all of us, we're serving in different places, in our workplace, in our home life. We're serving in all kinds of ways. We do get wearied in doing good. And if we're not careful, our hurt heart, the heart that's hurt, can become a hard heart. And if we don't take care of our hard heart, it can become a hostile heart. And before we know where we are, we're judging people. And we're thinking things we don't want to think. And um, there's a condition, I think, it exists in the Scriptures. It's called Martha-plexy. I don't know if you've ever struggled with it. it you won't find it, you know, on, on a doctor's report or anything like that. But Martha-plexy is a condition when you are serving, 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 and you look around you, and the room is full of Marys. And instead of thinking, oh, how lovely they're sp spending time with Jesus, you think, I am going to kill you. <laughs> I mean, you'd never say it out loud, but you think it. You think, you know, look at that lazy soul, so get up and do something for Jesus. And Martha falls into the trap, and we all fall into it, of accusing Jesus of not caring for her. And when that hurt turns into something that gets hard in our hearts, and we then get to a place where we're hostile towards our brothers and our sisters because they're not doing what we think they should be doing, and in fact all of us should be doing, we have a problem. And Jesus says, come to me. All of you who are burdened, 
heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So today I want to take your time to talk to you about the secret to living in that rest, the secret of abiding in that reality. And I want to take you to a couple of scriptures, so get your Bibles out for that, please. But I want to just say that this, for me, has become a very obvious thing. I don't know if you know this, but I'll tell you anyway, even if you do. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to be your Savior, and your Savior required of him that he would afford you two things. Two things became available to you when Jesus died on the cross. The first one is this, and it's a very important one, that your sins can be forgiven. Notice I use the word can, because in many ways, Jesus has already provided what is necessary for your sins to be forgiven, but you need to ask him to forgive you for your sins. You need to, the Bible refers to this as repent. In other words, turn away from doing it your own way and actually ask God for help. Ask God to rescue you from the sinful way in which you have lived. Let me ask you a quick question. Is there anybody in the room who's a sinner? And don't lie to yourself because the Bible says everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And sitting next to you right now is a filthy, dirty, rotten sinner. (laughs) Oh, goodness me. If you could see... The sin in that person's life, you would move four chairs. And the problem with that is that you're probably the one that needs to move because you, likewise, are a filthy, I think it always sounds better, filthy, dirty, (laughs) rotten, rotten sinner. But the good news for us is that in spite of all of our sins, though they be as scarlet, as outrageous as they are, seen and unseen, actions and lack of action, Jesus came to forgive us for our sins. He is a savior like no other. And all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask. So when Jesus died on the cross, he died to forgive you for your sins. You can be forgiven. But there's a second part to that reality. He died so that you can be restored into friendship with God. You are now a friend of God. If you're a born-again believer here today, you've repented of your sins, you've invited Jesus into your heart and life, you are a friend of God. Now, think for a second what a friend interacts with another friend like. That seems to me like a very kind of ridiculously equal interaction. I mean, what are you going to talk to God about that he doesn't already know? I rest my case. I mean, are you so fascinating and interesting that you can compete with the God of the universes? I rest my case. Are you so brilliant that you know so much about so much that Jesus is going to lean in and think, wow, I've never thought that before. This whole thing to me is just stunning that God would call me his friend. And the friend longs to bring joy, longs to help and support and encourage another friend. And a friend is a great place to start our understanding of this truth. Jesus says this in John 15 verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down down one's life for one's friends. And look what he says, you are my, say it out for me please, you are my friend. If you do what I command you, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I call you for everything. Look at the relationship to those two sentences. For everything I have learned from my father, I have made 
known, I think the authorized version says, available to you. So you and I now as Christians have a yoke of friendship with Jesus. And that yoke is meant to be God leading and guiding and us interacting and partnering with his plan and his purpose. And great thing about friendship is that you get to know your friend. You're curious about your friend. You're curious about why they think what they think and how they act and all the interactions that take place are really good. It's called fellowship in the Bible. You and I have been given a yoke of friendship to invite us into deep communion and connection and fellowship with Jesus. Someone say amen. I think that's a good yoke to carry. The second thing that has been given to us is that we have now become the bride of Christ. Now, gentlemen, don't get too concerned about this. It's uh, an interesting thing for all of you alpha males in the room. (laughs) But we have been called by God into the kind of relationship that exists between a husband and his wife. And a relationship of intimacy, a a relationship of tenderness, a relationship of mutuality, a relationship where, where the one party serves and blesses the other party and the other party serves and blesses the other party and the Bible teaches us that that yoke, that partnering with Jesus now as the bridegroom and us here as his bride has a purpose in it and Paul reflects this in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 to 27 and he uses the analogy of human relationship to draw our hearts towards this greater revelation. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Ladies, how does that look for you? Is that a good starting point? How did Christ love the church? He gave up his life for her. Amen? It's a good day out. You know, I've, I've counseled lots of married people over the years, and uh, there's this wonderful notion, I think, sometimes in, in the masculine mind that we're the head of the house, but what we fail to understand is the wife is the neck. Just saying. And it's never about who's in charge. Because the truth is when both hearts are submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, he's in charge. And so you start to find an equal yoking experience. Now, spiritually, God created men before he created women. So there's an order to that. And we need to explore what that means. But that doesn't mean, gentlemen, you get to tell everybody what to do when you do nothing yourself. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord who sets us free. Hallelujah. (laughs) So you need to get off that high horse because if you don't, someone's going to push you off it. Okay, and you might fall in a way that you cannot get back up from. So I look at this and I think, okay, what's happening in the natural has a greater reflection in the supernatural. And we are called as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word. And to present her to himself a glorious church without stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless in the eyes of God. God is at work in his church's bride to make us without spot or blemish or wrinkle, but holy and blameless in his eyes. I I often make jokes about things that are probably not helpful to some of you because some of you, I think, don't get my humor, but that's okay. I've been chucked out of better places than this. That's okay. That's okay. 
But I, I say this, if Jesus was to return tonight, okay, which some people are praying he would, we'd be more like the bride of Frankenstein than we'd be like the bride of Christ. And let me tell you why, because we've added and bolted on all manner of things, religious practices, all kinds of protocols and presumptions. See, when you ask a man what his wife was wearing on her wedding day, he'll say something white. He has no idea that it's taken three or four months to decide where the beads go or the train is or how the shape or the silhouette particularly makes that person's figure attractive. He's not interested in the dress. He's interested in who's in the dress. And I think sometimes when we think of God as the bridegroom, we think all of this stuff is important to him. I don't think it matters one jot to God. God is coming for you. He's coming for me. He desires you. He desires me. You are the apple of his eye. You are the passion of his heart. Come on, wake up, church. You, his affection is for you. And he wants you. He desires you. Not the paraphernalia or the boltons or the add-ons or you. As you are. As you are, he wants you. Amen? Amen. I love this thought. God loves me the way I am. Aren't you grateful that God loves you the way you are? But aren't you also grateful that he loves you too much to leave you the way you are? So he keeps working in your life to bring about the holiness and the reflection and the affections of God. So we are yoked to Jesus now in friendship. We are yoked to Jesus also as a bride would be yoked to a husband. But we are also yoked to Jesus in sonship. The Bible teaches us that God now, when he thinks of us and relates to us, no longer speaks to us or interacts with us as servants. Servants do as they're told. And I, I have a little problem sometimes when people say this about the will of God. They say things like this. Well, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Okay, and what we're doing is we're bypassing sonship. What we're, what we're saying is I don't want to interact. I don't want to have to work it out. I don't have to figure it out. You just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And we all think that's quite a glorious thought, except it doesn't fit with the nature of relationship that God has chosen to have with you. God does not need voice-activated disciples. Okay, God wants relationship. He wants conversation. He wants interaction. He wants a mutual fellowship. He wants you to learn from his heart. He wants you to grow as a result of that. He's not looking for people who just do as they're told without any interaction because that is what servants do. Servant doesn't need to know why you need this or that. They just need to know that you need it. But a friend or a wife or a son, or a daughter, they have a deeper relationship, and that relationship helps them understand the motivations behind the instructions. And God invites us to live under a yoke of sonship, under the yoke of being the bride of Christ, and under the yoke of friendship with him. Let's look at some of our invitations now as we've moved from being orphans, maybe servants into sonship. Look at these together. Ephesians 1 verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. What a wonderful statement. According to the kind intention of his will. So God longs for us to interact with him as a father longs to interact with his son or daughter. Romans 8 verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of 
Okay, is that good news? Could you tell your face that's good news? That's good news. You are no longer subject to a spirit of slavery. In other words, all those things that held you captive have been dealt with. But you see, here's the truth. If you're not a slave to God, you will be a slave to something else. Whether it's your ego, ambition, your lust, your passions, you will be a slave to something else. So unless you are yoked to Christ in sonship, you will be yoked to something else. You can't live in a vacuum. You were created to be attached. And so in this new attachment, as sons adopted into the family of God, we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. There's a, a yoke placed upon us, and as he rises in his fullness, he will rise us in his fullness. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out. In other words, once we lived as orphans, now we know we belong. And we're living in the reality of the Father's love and affection. And so when we come to him, we don't come as servants begging. I don't need to beg God. God is the father who delights to give good gifts to his children. I don't need to pretend I'm going to do A, B, and C to impress you. He knows who I am. He knows what I am. But he loves me the way I am. And he loves me too much to leave me the way I am. And so I come to him and cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is a tender word that speaks of relationship and intimacy and a mutual affection where the father pours out his love on his child and the child reciprocates with love towards the father. 1 John 3 verse 1 says, See how great... Uh, can I ask you, do you mind because my throat's a bit sore from all the shouting, I call it singing, but it's shouting. Could I ask you that you would read this out over your life? Read this scripture out. Let's do it collectively. See how great. In other words, you are now very peculiar. And the world doesn't get it, and the world doesn't understand it. But between you and God is this glorious intimacy that causes you to live differently. And that glorious invitation to fellowship with him will destroy fear in your life. The Bible says that perfect love, listen to the phrase, drives out in the authorized version, drives it out. In other words, when you live in the union of the love that's been afforded to you through Father, nothing regarding that kind of yoking to some other thing can stand in his presence. And even fear, which is a formidable spirit, okay, it's a formidable spirit, is driven out by what? Love, love, love wins, church. Love always wins, amen, it always wins. Don't ever get caught up in the publicity and the propaganda of the enemy. Love has the last word on everything in this life. God is love, and he wins every argument. Last one, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of this world. What's the spirit of this world? An orphan spirit that lives independently, relying on humanity to produce something of value or good. You were living like that. All the people that don't know Jesus live like that. They're trying to make it on their own. They're trying to find it for themselves. They're trying to work it out. They're trying to live it out. And actually outside of God, they will never come up with the answers that they're searching for. 
because we don't have to live with the spirit of the world. That's an orphan spirit. But we live by the spirit of God, the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us from God. So living in relationship with him, we start to discover the things that have now been afforded to us as a result of Jesus. So we are now yoked in three ways, and I could have gone on, there's other things, to Jesus Christ. Look at them and maybe say them out loud. I am a friend of God. Yeah, I am the bride of Christ. I am a child of God. Now, pause for a moment and consider this. That a friend, or indeed a bride, or indeed a child, does not have to serve. Those relationships, in many, many ways, in human terms, have privileges attached to them. Don't they? So if you're the friend of somebody who's an important somebody, you get the benefits of that important somebody somethings. There's benefits attached to it, isn't there? I don't have many influential friends at all. I don't know if I have very many friends at all. Over the years, that group of people has diminished and diminished. But I have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I have a friend like no other. I have a friend who loves me and wants the best for me. I have a friendship with God that profoundly is changing me. And he lets me away with nothing. Why? Because he's my good friend. And my good friend doesn't put up with my nonsense. He exposes it because he cares and brings healing and restoration as a result. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is grace and mercy for those who need a tender touch and indeed direction from God himself. Bride doesn't have to serve her husband. In fact, I think more and more as we move towards a, a more equal society... People, when I'm doing vows with them, they want to remove these little phrases from the marriage vows to honor and obey. In fact, the amount of conversations I've had with people where they've tried to take those things out and I've had to say, well, just pause for a moment because perhaps you don't really appreciate what honor means. And the word honor in Scripture means to stoop down and to make much of another person. When we lift up the name of Jesus, we are stooping down and lifting up the name of Jesus. Honor is a good thing. You were created to bring honor to God. You have a capacity to honor God. You have a capacity to honor others. And if you remove those thoughts from our minds, we start to become slightly entitled that we are the ones that need to be honored. There's not a person in this room that doesn't need to be honored, and there's not a person in this room that doesn't need to do honor. We are all called to do and experience both. Amen? Amen. So I, I encourage them, please just don't rewrite the whole world in a sentence because the word obey becomes a problem to people. And children don't have to serve you. I mean, you may make them, <laughs> you may manipulate them, you may try and force them to, but they don't have to do it. So all of these relationships, they're teaching us something, that what we have with God is so precious. These yokes, friend, the bride, sonship, they are positively good things, and we can benefit from all of them without lifting a finger, without acting or doing anything to say thank you in any which way with God. And I want you to hear that because I think sometimes we don't get that. God doesn't need you to save the world. 
Jesus didn't die to get you on the worship team. And if I were you, I'd aim a little higher. Not because the worship team isn't good, but there's so much more in God than just serving in some department in the church. You are set free to live as you want to live, to give as you want to give, to respond as you want to respond. Can you hear me? Because religion beseeches us and we end up in this cycle of trying to do all manner of things to prove to God or to receive from God whatever it is we think we need to receive. You already have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You couldn't get any more than you currently have. They have been positionally given to you through these yokes that I have just tried to explain to you. And if we are living in that way, we start to arrive at this place where our heart becomes tenderized by a much greater truth. And this greater truth invites me, and in fact it undoes me. And consistently it unravels me, because this is the truth of truths regarding the whole concept of service. Jesus came to serve us. Look at this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who has come here today to serve is not the pastor, it's not the worship team, it's not the welcome team. The person in our midst who is the greatest servant of all, whose whole intention is to serve you, and he serves you in all kinds of ways, is Jesus himself. He is simply the most breathtaking servant and he comes today in our gathering to wash your feet. He comes in our gathering to restore your soul. He comes in our gathering to renew your faith. He comes in our gathering to remind you about grace. He is here to serve you. He's ready to serve you. He desires to serve you. I wonder if we can let him do that. You know, when I was in KT and I used to kind of hoover the, the carpet at the, in between the services, all of our wonderful African friends would come and try and snatch it out of my hand and say, Pastor, you shouldn't be doing this. And I think, why should I not be doing it? Because I believe that the best model we can give to anyone in regard to leadership or whatever that actually is like is servanthood. Jesus washed the feet of a man who wanted to kill him. He washed the feet of a man who would reject him. He washed the feet of those who would run from him. But he washed and he washed and he washed. And he always washes our feet because he is the greatest servant of all. And he's here in your life to serve you. Will you let him? Will you snatch the towel out of his hand? Will you remove the hoover from his grip? Will you let him serve you? And I wonder what kind of life that would look like if I allow Jesus to serve me the way he wants to serve me. I wonder how free I would be. I wonder how liberated from all kinds of false and fake responsibilities I would be. I wonder if I allowed him to permeate and penetrate every part of my human condition until somehow in the fellowship as a son or as his bride or as his friend, I become like him. And when I look at Jesus, I find this truth. Loving is serving. You know the scripture, John 3, 16. For God so loved. Okay, pause for a minute. And we, we recognize that the motivation for it all 
All that you have benefited, all that you've experienced, all that you will experience is the Father's love. Salvation was his desire. It was his intent. He is the great architect of our salvation story. And to demonstrate the motivation for salvation, because it could have looked like it was legalistic in some way, he writes this phrase in John 3.16, for God so loved Today, if you never said another hallelujah, never sang and never sung, never prayed another prayer, never read another Bible verse, never served in any context, you could not be more loved than you are today. And if tonight you ruin it all by doing something or acting stupid, tomorrow you could not be loved any less than you did today. His love is perfect. It's consistent. It's a permanent reality. Oh, I'm excited about it anyway, Jesus. It's a permanent reality. But without an act attached to it, it would just become a fantasy. So God says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And in coming to our world, Jesus is serving the heart of his father. He's serving the desires that he has witnessed, experienced, and been connected to, which is a God who deeply, affectionately, passionately, powerfully, and now prophetically steps into our world and says this. Up until now, you may not have realized this, but I am for you. Up until this moment, you may try to prove yourself to me. Let me now show you grace and mercy. Up until this moment, you tried to keep the laws. Look how well you did on that. Now, I am superseding all that was legal about that with grace and mercy and the majesty of my affection for you. And so Jesus is God in flesh, demonstrating to us that love is serving. Why don't you say that out loud? Love is serving. And if we are serving Jesus out of an overflow of love, we will experience the easy yoke. If we are serving Jesus for any other intent or reason, it will at times become hard and difficult. But obedience and love are not the same thing. And they're not necessarily hand in hand. How many people in your life are you obedient to that you do not love? Let's look at them. The law. Is there anybody who goes home and says, I really love the police? <laughs> oh, thank you, Jesus, for giving me the gift of the police. What about the tax man? <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah, Jesus. I love the tax man. <laughs> or even at school when you're speaking with your teacher or your lecturer, wherever you find yourself in, you don't kind of obey because you love that person. You might not even like them. You might dislike them, actually, and still obey them. You might even dislike the pastor and still obey him. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you see, love and obedience are two separate things. Your parents, you may not be overly keen on how they tell you to act or interact with them, but you obey them probably because of fear, because obedience or lack of obedience has consequence, doesn't it? But that's not what Jesus came to show us. 
Serving for all of us is only life-giving. It's as life-giving as the love you have in your heart for Jesus. I remember the very first time I got saved. I got saved in someone's house. I get into the car to go home, and the love of God comes into my car. I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't put words to describe that experience. But that baptism of love made me turn up at a church. I didn't even like you people. <laughs> turn up at a church made me serve. I used to sweep the car park. Got involved with the youth work. Got involved. Love is the greatest motivator to serve. And that's why I think the scriptures say to us that God wants to restore our first love. Not because he wants you to serve, but if you're serving and your love for God has grown cold, you will become hurt. Eventually your heart will be hard. And if you're not careful, you'll become hostile in some way to the purposes and the plans of God. So where does love come from? Where does that kind of love originate from? Well, I think love comes from the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit brings and offers and encourages and produces in us this kind of exceptional, outstanding and profound love. In fact, when Paul speaking to the church about the fruit of the Spirit, he says, fruit of the Spirit, and notice it's first, is love. In other words, the minute you come to salvation and the Spirit comes to habitation in your life, He starts to open up and increase and form and fashion love. Love is the starting point. And, and you know, as I know, when you first got saved, that you ended up doing things you never thought you'd do, exceptional things you never thought you could do, because love began to change the way you saw yourself, began to change the way you saw life. So the first thing that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts is produce a love. And that love is a love from God initially. We start to experience God's love. And as we experience God's love, we be, are able to be affectionate in response to Him with our love. And that cycle of Him loving us and us loving Him back is actually the cycle of worship that we've been experiencing this morning. While we were still yet sinners, died for us, and he died because love motivated him to act in a particular way. And now that we are saints, this is not that we boast in our love for him, but we boast first and foremost in his love for us. For unless he had loved us or loves us, we have nothing to offer him. It's only his love for us that opens up our lives to the possibility of loving him. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 puts it this way. Jesus said, but you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Please stop with me for a second. We won't be too much longer. I know you've got a chicken dinner waiting for you. Okay. But I want to just suggest to you, how on earth could that ever be possible? I struggle to love people who love me. Don't you? I struggle to love people who like me. How on earth could I ever love people who hated me? But this love that I speak of, this love that the Spirit begins to cultivate and produce in our lives is not natural, it's supernatural. And when you see Jesus dying on the cross, 
beaten and bruised and battered by our sin and the hands of men. And he says these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You're seeing the love of God overwhelmingly poured out on his enemies. And you were one of them. So was I. The working of this love in our lives is always meant to bring us to a place where we're not living tossed and turned by people's affections or lack of affection. But we're living in the fullness of the Father's love to such a place of delight that even if people hate us, even if people despise us, imagine that as your legacy. I don't know what they did in their life, but they loved everybody unconditionally. That is what Jesus invites us to live in and to live from. And pure divine heavenly love is overflowing from your heart, then obedience will naturally follow. Church, I want to tell you, there are people you can't forgive right now, and it's because you need an upgrade of love. There are things you can't get past right now, and the reason you can't is because you need a fresh revelation of God's love for you. You can't give yourself in that way to that problem unless God reveals himself to you in his fullness. You need a fresh, I've been praying for you this week, praying for myself this week, that we wouldn't settle for bread that came yesterday, that God would give us our daily bread, that today we would experience the love of God ourselves because without it, without that fresh encounter, that daily bread, give us the stay our daily bread, my heart can so easily fall into the trap of segregating myself from some of the invitations that Jesus affords to me. It's not enough for me to love those who love me. I am called, and God gives us the capacity to love those who even hate us, those who are against us. This is how he does it. Are you ready? Last five minutes. I promise you we'll be done by 10 past. Can you wait to 10 past? This is how he does it. Ezekiel 36. Let's read this together. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Someone say hallelujah to that. And you will be clean. God, help us. Jesus, how good is that? I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you... What's he going to give you? What have you been given? And who gave it? God. I will give you a new heart and put a within you. I will remove from you. Oh, uh, wait, 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 wait. How can this be? How could this possibly be available to us? And that heart, that heart of yours that's trampled and bruised and broken and embittered by life. You think there's no way out? The enemy's told you there's no way forward. He's fooled you into believing his propaganda and his lies. But God has promised you a new heart. And instead of a heart of stone, he's promised you a tender heart, a compassionate heart, a heart that's capable of breathing and loving and caring and responding to the world around you. I will give you a heart of flesh. And look what happens when God begins to give us a new heart. Read it out, please. Spirit, 
Without a new heart, we will never be able to love God the way we have been invited to love God. We need him first to love us. And when he loves us, he gives us a new perspective. You know, you can have a really bad time in your life. Come to church and experience the love of God. And nothing's really changed in your bank account or your home life or whatever. But you just have this wonderful sense of hope and optimism. Because he opens your eyes to see that he is above all. He resides over all. And you have a new perspective. You can come here. You can have a chip on your shoulder. Some of us in this room have logs the size of oak trees. You can be carrying it for years. It can be justified. You can tell the world all the reasons why you feel the way you feel. But when you come under the fountain of the Father's love, your heart will just melt like wax in his presence and your attitude will shift and it will change. And in this interaction, you will have a new capacity, a capacity to love him like you never dreamt possible. I never dreamt I would love God the way I love God. I always loved myself more than I loved anything else. And yet here we are and I'm serving God to the best of my ability because love compels me to give up my life for him. You'll have a new capacity to love. Right after the Holy Spirit gives you new life through salvation and leads you to Jesus, he pours out a new heart into you. And all the love of God is now available to you. And God desires to consistently pour this upon your life. Look at this scripture. We'll end with this because in many ways this answers the question to the secret of love. For God's love has been... Oh, wait, 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 wait. You see that word poured? That word poured in the Greek is like standing under this huge waterfall. This is not some trickle from heaven. Now that you are born again, now that he has given you a new heart, he fills it and fills it and fills it and fills it to the point you cannot stand any longer. You have to submit and lie back and enjoy it. Poured out where? Through the Holy Spirit. Who has been given to us. The secret of the easy yoke. Is this. And there is no limit. To how much you can experience. God has set things up. So that you can live in the lavishing love of his heart for your life. When I was growing up, sometimes we'd go on holidays to a place in Ireland called Sligo. And Sligo, like most corners of Ireland, have all kinds of, you know, mysteries and fallacies attached to them. And um, there was this one little place in Sligo by the lake called the Holy Well. I don't know if you've ever been to a holy well. I mean, I tripped up and said something very unholy as a boy at this holy well, so I probably defiled all that was good about it. But, but we went to the holy well, and as you get to the holy well, as you get nearer, you hear this sound, this like noise, it's like a thundering noise. And uh, I got really excited, really excited, because I love waterfalls. Love waterfalls. And um, we were young kids, and so we... As young kids do, we just got undressed and got into the water. And we're standing there, 
And I thought I could stand under this waterfall. From a distance, it didn't look particularly powerful. You know, it's not Niagara Falls, for goodness sake. And look at me in all my youth and zeal. And as I stood there, I found that the driving force of this waterfall, it could only have one response. And that was to close my eyes and fall back into the lake that was behind me. Today, God has made it possible for you and I to stand under the fountain. Jesus in John 4 says, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. It's unstoppable. The love of God is unstoppable. And I wonder if throughout the scriptures we keep getting this invitation to come back to that. That he will restore our first love. Because without it, we'll become hard because we're hurt. And if we're not careful, we'll be hostile to the purposes of God. Love, love, love. And I'm terrible because I sang so many songs, I can hear the Beatles singing it in my head. But this love is greater than the song a man could pen. It's the love of a father who delights in you. And today, you have his attention. And it's up to you whether you receive his affection. Just yield. Just cave in. If you need a new heart, say, God, my heart's hard. I need you to soften it with the oil of your presence. If you need a fresh revelation of the Father's love, then just say, Father, I know you have more for me today. I'm here. I need it. I'm thirsty to experience it. If you need your sins forgiven, just ask him. He's so good. He, he's been waiting for you to ask that question, actually, all of your life because he wants to give you a new heart and he wants to make you his friend and he wants to join with you in the glorious wonder of being his bride and he wants to give you an inheritance through sonship that will not spoil or fade. We didn't sing how deep the Father's love for us accidentally today. It was intentional. And may God bless you over this bank holiday weekend. May you find yourself, like me, that boy, under that fountain, just caving in and allowing this glorious outpouring of love to transform everything about your life. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a good week.